This recording is from Amy Goodman's visit to the Sanctuary for Independent Media on April 22nd, 2023. Thank you all for being here and welcome. For those who I have not met, my name is KP Holler. I'm the recently appointed executive director here at the Sanctuary. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, this is a very special weekend. We're so happy to have you joining us, and we're gathered here to do a number of things. We're here to celebrate the history of this amazing organization, to toast Steve Pierce for nearly two decades of transformative leadership, and to toast all of you who have helped to build this sanctuary campus over the years. We're also here to raise critical funds to set a course for a sustainable future. This is a truly full circle moment. Uh, the funds that were used to purchase the building that we have all come to know and love as the sanctuary were raised during one of Amy's visits to Troy. And here we are 18 years later, celebrating our growth from this historic church building to a multifaceted campus that includes Freedom Square, Nature Lab, and Colored City Growers. And we're so close to being able to burn the mortgage on this entire campus. Thanks in no small part to Steve's leadership. Thank you. So today, you, we'll ask you to remember why independent voices are so important in art, science, and media, and why we all keep coming back to the sanctuary after all these years. Without further ado, I would like to welcome one of our board members, Eleanor Stein, uh, to the stage to introduce our amazing guest speaker for the evening. Hi, everybody. So today is Earth Day, the actual Earth Day. Um, 53 years since the first Earth Day when literally millions poured into the streets of the US and world cities. And I'm here to help us welcome my good friend Amy. We're, we share an extended family. We were brought together by the great human rights lawyer Michael Ratner many years ago. And Amy is a climate defender who travels each year to the annual summits, the climate summits, to bring us not only the images and the words of the heads of state who are usually selling us out in the blue zone, but also to introduce us to the global climate change movements, making change and making trouble in the green zones. And for over 20 years, Amy with her co-founder and other great sanctuary friend, Juan Gonzalez, has started her workday at about 4 a.m. Why? To bring us the realities of oppression and resistance around the world, and not just surface facts, but the roots, the radical news, the roots of the problems, and the roots of the solutions, and the roots of resistance. So in just a couple of days this week, her show covered the dangers of radioactive chemicals that might be released into the Hudson River, wars in South Sudan and Yemen, abuse of Central American migrant children in factories across this country, deaths in prison, and the mendacity of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. In addition, last week, she featured a story introducing us to Haitian activist and human rights asylum seeker, Jean Madrigal, who finally won a decision in court, allowing him to remain in the US. And he is the founder of something called the New Sanctuary Movement in New York City. So 
we shout out to our brother, Sanctuary in New York City. So Amy has been a beacon for us. She's been our conscience. She's been our voice. And she's heard and seen in other for over 1,400 outlets uh, all over the US and on the web worldwide. She's won many journalism awards. So let me ask you to join me in giving Amy for two decades a great friend to the sanctuary. And let's give her her real sanctuary for independent media. Welcome. Let's welcome Amy. Hello, everyone. It is so wonderful to be back in the sanctuary for independent media, the sanctuary of dissent, to be celebrating where you have all come from and all that has to be done and all that you can do as you build this community even further. As Eleanor talked about what we've done over the last few weeks, one of the issues we've focused on are what's going on in the prison, in the jail in Fulton County in Atlanta. In the early hours of September 13th last year, Officer Gina Andrews approached cell 214 in the Fulton County Jail in Atlanta, Georgia, quote, to move inmate Thompson for psych evaluation. She said, I noticed inmate Thompson on the floor slumped over his head in the toilet. I called his name, I noticed he wasn't breathing and he wasn't moving. Thus began inmate incident number 7A22-3205, describing in cold bureaucratic language the grisly death of 35-year-old LaShawn Thompson, LaShawn Pennell Thompson, a black man suffering from mental illness. He'd been jailed for three months without charge in pretrial detention because he could not afford bail. LaShawn's family did not know where he was, the incident and autopsy reports they later obtained continue the grim account of his death. Officer Andrews asked a prisoner worker who was in a hazmat suit to attend to LaShawn as she reported inmate Thompson was covered in feces and lice. The reports include deeply disturbing photos that show LaShawn and death naked on a mat on the floor in the filthy cell. A close-up shows his face crawling with insects. The Fulton County Medical Examiner wrote, the body is infested with an enormous number of small insects that are two millimeters in length. Michael Harper, the attorney for the family of LaShawn, said the jail cell Mr. Thompson was housed in was not fit for a diseased animal. Harper appeared on Democracy Now!, joined by LaShawn's sister, Shanita, and his brother, Brad McKay, in their first broadcast interview, since they went public with the gruesome details about their late brother's suffering and death. Brad talked about the family's decision to show the devastating photos with the public. I thought about Emmett Till, Brad said. 
It broke my heart to see those photos. We wanted the world to see it so the world can feel it and the world can wake up and see what's going on out there and get behind it and make a change. We want the world to wake up and make a change, Brad said. He was invoking the memory of Emmett Till the 14-year-old African-American boy who was sent down to Mississippi, Money, Mississippi, by his mom, Mamie Till Mobley, to spend the summer with his aunt and uncle and cousins to get out of the heat of Chicago. Days later, his brutally beaten, disfigured body, weighted down with a cotton gin fan tied to his body with barbed wire, was pulled from the Tallahatchie River. Emmett's mother wanted the world to see what they had done to her son. When his casket was sent back from Mississippi uh, to Chicago, she insisted the casket be open for the funeral. Jet Magazine published a picture of Emmett in his casket with his distended, brutalized head on them, showing the world the ravages of racism, the brutality of bigotry. Michael Harper said the jail knew that LaShawn Thompson had mental health issues in June of 2022. They put him in a psychiatric wing of that jail, neglected him. He was there for three months. There are reports in the incident report from the death that the officers were aware he was declining, was in a filthy cell. They complained to their supervisors. Nothing happened. He was there until he died. His body found infested with those horrible bed bug bites and lice and insects. LaShawn continued, uh, Harper continued, LaShawn Thompson was a pre-trial detainee. He had not been convicted of any crime. And how often the horror of these kind of detentions goes on. Last November, the Southern Center for Human Rights reported the Fulton County Jail was dangerously understaffed and overcrowded and had an uncontained outbreak of lice and scabies. The ACLU issued a report analyzing Fulton County's jail population, finding Fulton County regularly jails people in pretrial detention for longer than 90 days, some for over two years when they haven't even been charged with a crime. Many of those people held simply because they couldn't afford bail. Fulton County responded to the public revelations of LaShawn Thompson's horrible death by moving 600 prisoners of the jail's overcrowded population of close to 3,000, and the sheriff demanded the resignation of three top jail officials. County commissioners also approved $5 million for emergency improvements to the jail. The lawyer. Michael Harper said, a new jail is not going to stop neglectful detention office from not caring for mentally ill people, nor will it bring back LaShawn Thompson. Brad McKay, Brad McCray, LaShawn's brother, offered this hope in his brother's memory. He said, I want the world to remember him as I do, as a loving person, a playful person. He loved music. He loved to cook. I want the world to remember him as their cousin, their brother, their uncle, or whatever the case may be, because it could happen to their family, just like it happened to mine. 
Dennis Moynihan and I, who's here today, uh, the special projects coordinator of Democracy Now! and who writes a column with me every week, um, wrote this column this past week. On Thursday, there was a mass protest in front of the Fulton County Jail. Um, ben Crum, uh, uh, who, uh, Benjamin Crump, who had joined the lawyer team for the Thompson family, um, said that Colin Kaepernick is now going to pay for an independent autopsy. The, the one that was done by the coroner was pretty damning. And I think the fact that Brad McRae, who spoke to us from the historic city of Montgomery, Alabama, he was sitting in a studio just blocks from the lynching museum, the lynching museum that Brian Stevenson began. Um, and he was sitting in a studio in the city of Montgomery where Rosa Parks stood up, well, sat down, and in so doing stood up for everyone when she demanded the end of segregated busing in Montgomery. I think the power of independent media is amplifying the voices of people who are not usually heard, bringing together history and the remarkable historic moments um, with the present. So especially young people don't have to reinvent the wheel every time so that together we can imagine a different future. And when Brad, this young man, the brother of LaShawn, invoked Emmett Till, he was invoking Emmett Till because I started by asking him, after sharing our condolences at Democracy Now! with his family, why he wanted us to show the pictures. Because the pictures are gruesome. Is that how he wanted us to remember his brother? The fact that he invoked the memory of Emmett Till and how his mother, Mamie Till Mobley, demanded that her dead son's disfigured face be seen by the world to change the world. Mamie Till Mobley had something very important to teach the press of today. Show the pictures. Show the images. And if we did that, with everyone who dies in jail, who perhaps is killed by the death, by the state uh, using the death penalty, if these images are shown of people on the ground who've been killed in war, I really do think that war, the brutality, that prisoner, the violence against prisoners, I think it could end if we saw the images. And that's the important importance of places like this sanctuary, like Democracy Now!, independent media all over the world, not brought to us by the prison industrial complex when we cover mass incarceration, not brought to us by the weapons manufacturers. I don't like to talk about the defense industry, the 
weapons of war manufacturers, because that's what, for example, assault weapons are, whether we're talking about them overseas or here at home on the streets of our cities, when we cover the climate catastrophe, we're not brought to you by the oil, the gas, the coal, the nuclear companies. When we cover inequality, we're not brought to you by the banks or financial institutions. We're brought to you by you. And that's what this sanctuary is built on, the community saying, this is what we need, this is what we'll support to ensure that our stories and the stories of others all over the world get told. I see the media as a huge kitchen table that stretches across the globe, that we all sit around and debate and discuss the most important issues of the day, war and peace, life and death, and anything less than that is a disservice to the servicemen and women of this country. Anything less than that is a disservice to a democratic society. So I am so honored to be here tonight to celebrate independent media. I want to talk about another development in these last few weeks. Um, and I'm going to take off on interviews we did on Democracy Now! and a column Dennis and I did in the last few weeks called no Justins, no peace. No Justins, no peace. That's right. The largely white Tennessee House of Representatives, with its heavily gerrymandered Republican supermajority, several weeks ago, expelled two members, the youngest two black legislators in the Tennessee State Legislature. Justin Jones of Nashville, where the week before a mass shooting, another mass shooting had taken place, this one at the Christian Covenant School, killing three nine-year-old students and three adults. And they expelled Justin Pearson, who represented Memphis, Dr. King's Memphis, where Dr. King died in 1968 of gun violence. They stood accused, the Justins, of breaching house decorum for nonviolently protesting the chambers in action on gun violence in the wake of yet another mass school shooting. Three nine-year-olds, I repeat, three nine-year-old children and three adults were killed in that massacre by one single shooter armed with an AR-15 style semi-automatic rifle, a weapon of war. <coughs> At that time, the count, now it's over 150, the count of mass shootings in the United States in 2023 was 146. Over a thousand people marched on the Capitol across the political spectrum. 
flooding the Senate and House galleries, chanting demands for gun control. During a House recess, Jones and Pearson went to the floor with a small bullhorn. They were joined by Democratic Representative Gloria Johnson. She was a former teacher who herself had survived a shooting uh, years ago. These elected officials were later dubbed the Tennessee Three. And tomorrow, on Monday, they'll be meeting with President Biden at the White House. Infuriated, the Republican House Speaker, Cameron Sexton, pledged to punish them. In a radio interview later, Sexton said the three were worse than the January 6th insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol in 2021. On Thursday, April 7th, the House held three separate votes. The Republicans voted to expel the two Justins, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, but failed to muster enough votes to purge Representative Gloria Johnson, again, who's white. When asked later why she thought she avoided expulsion, Johnson said it might have had something to do with the color of my skin. During the six-hour expulsion proceedings, each of the targeted Democrats were questioned by their Republican accusers. Justin Pearson was admonished by State Rep Andrew Farmer, whose tone dripping with contempt clearly echoed Tennessee's racist roots. He said, that's why you're standing there, because of that temper tantrum that day, for that yearning to have attention. That's what you wanted. Well, you're getting it now as he was about to be expelled, the white state representative said to him. The Tennessee House Speaker Cameron Sexton drove the effort to expel the black legislators. It wasn't his first confrontation with Justin Jones. In 2020, as a Black Lives Matter activist following the police killing of George Floyd, Justin Jones, now the Nashville state rep, then led a successful movement to remove the bust of Nathan Bedford Forrest from the state capitol rotunda. Forrest, a Tennessean enslaver, plantation owner, and Confederate Army general, is revered by racist white Southerners. Forrest was accused of numerous atrocities and war crimes during the Civil War. He led the massacre at Fort Pillow, 40 miles north of Memphis, where Confederate forces are believed to have killed hundreds of unarmed Union troops after they surrendered. Forrest was also the first Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, which was founded in Tennessee. Cameron Sexton, the current House Speaker, voted against removing his bust from the rotunda. Oh, then there was Holocaust Remembrance Day last year, January 27th. The House Speaker Sexton interrupted a floor speech by Democratic Representative John Ray Clemens, whose wife is Jewish. Clemens was criticizing a Tennessee county banning the Holocaust memoir Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Sexton stopped what he had to say on the floor. Justin Jones has repeatedly called on the House Speaker to resign. By most accounts, Sexton's campaign to purge the Tennessee Three has failed miserably. 
Just in the last few weeks, right after the expulsion, Jones was unanimously reappointed to the State House by the Nashville City Council. Then Justin Pearson rallied with supporters in Memphis in front of the historic Lorraine Motel. It was on that second floor balcony, April 4th, 1968, almost 55 years ago that Dr. King was assassinated. He rallied, Pearson rallied, almost 55 years to the day that the Tennessee House expelled these two young black elected officials. After the Shelby County commissioners voted unanimously to reappoint Pearson to the legislature, he spoke, invoking Dr. King's words. Pearson said, the message for all the people in Nashville who decided to expel us, you cannot expel hope, you cannot expel justice, you cannot expel our voice, and you sure can't expel our fight. We look forward to continuing the fight, continuing to advocate until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let's get back to work, he said. In 1892, about 125 years ago, a white mob burned the offices of the Memphis Free Speech and Headlight newspaper to the ground. In retaliation for the fearless anti-lynching reporting by the newspaper's co-owner, the legendary black investigative journalist, Ida B. Wells. Almost 130 years later, Justin Jones wrote a book about his own political trajectory called The People's Plaza about the protest in Nashville following the 2020 police killing of George Floyd. He opens the book with a quote from Ida B. Wells who said, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. Well, in Nashville, the Tennessee Three are doing just that. They will meet with President Biden on Monday at the White House, redefining the White House. Um, and they teach us something very important. Again, as we dip back into history, to Ida B. Wells, to the importance of independent media that brings us right here today. Whether we're talking about the sanctuary, for independent media, or we're talking about Pacifica Radio, where Democracy Now! came out of 27 years ago. Um, I've often told the story of Pacifica, but I think it fits in so appropriately what, right here. Pacifica Radio, the oldest independent media network in this country, was born in Berkeley, California in 1949, the first Pacifica station, KPFA, in Berkeley, founded by a man named Lou Hill. And I was deeply touched as the doors were locked at the sanctuary today, and we spent the time, you always want to spend every minute usefully, reading all of the quotations on the front of the sanctuary. And I saw just above the door, I took so many pictures, it's going to take a minute to find it, just above the door, the beautiful quote of Lou Hill, the founder of Pacifica Radio, who said, as long as I can communicate, I can create, 
As long as I can create, I am free. Yes, I do think that independent media, that forum for dissent, the table that stretches across the globe that we all debate around can set us free when it is free. Lou Hill founded Pacifica Radio in Berkeley, California. Um, he was resisting war when he came out of the detention camps. He said, there's got to be a media outlet not run by corporations that profit from war, but run by journalists and artists. Um, or as the great um, dean at the Annenberg School of Communications, George Gerbner, said, we need a media not run by corporations that have nothing to tell and everything to sell that are raising our children today. And so KPFA went on the air in 49, KPFK in Los Angeles, I was just raising money for it this past week, um, uh, went on the air in 1959. Our station in New York, WVAI, where I first met Steve Pierce, went on the air in 1960. And WPFW in Washington on the air in 1977, and KPFT in Houston went on the air in 1970. That's the five Pacifica stations, the Fab Five. And that, it's that station in Houston uh, that I wanted to talk about for a minute, KPFT, and how it relates to um, even what's happening in Tennessee with the House Speaker trying to preserve the bust of the um, first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. I can't remember if it's Grand Wizard, um, uh, Grand Cyclops, or um, I often confuse their titles, but I, I will, I, we have to be accurate as journalists. But KPFT went in the air in 1970. Within a few weeks, it was blown up by the Ku Klux Klan. They strapped dynamite to the base of the transmitter and blew it to smithereens. KPFT immediately um, uh, jumped into action, and within a few weeks, they rebuilt the transmitter, and KPFT went on the air. And the Klan strapped 15 times the dynamite to the base of the transmitter and blew it up again, right in the middle of um, Arlo Guthrie singing Alice's Restaurant, which I actually think is a very good song. But um, <laughs> it took a while then after that, a couple months for KPFT to get back on their feet in 1971, January. Um, they rebuilt the transmitter. The media actually came and paid attention. Arlo Guthrie came back to Houston to finish Alice's Restaurant on the air, and KPFT went on the air again and hasn't pretty much gone off since then. Um, but I think the words of the Grand Wizard or the Cyclops or Dragon, whatever their name is, um, his words then were very important. Um, he was proud of what he had done, of blowing up the transmitter. And that's why it's so important independent media continue. He called it his proudest act. Why? Because I think he understood how dangerous independent media is. Dangerous because it allows people to speak for themselves. And when you hear someone speaking from their own experience, whether it's an Iraqi child, an Afghan aunt, uh, uncle in Palestine, or a grandma in Israel, 
it breaks down bigotry and stereotypes, right? I'm not saying you have to agree with who you hear, but it makes you, you much less likely want to destroy the person. It's that understanding that's the beginning of peace. I think the media can be the greatest force for peace on earth. Instead, all too often, it's wielded as a weapon of war. And that's why it's so important that we take the media back. And that's what this sanctuary is really all about, is starting at the local level to bring out the stories of people in Troy, in Schenectady, in Albany, and of course people come in from all over the world. And it's through these conversations and these stories that we realize our commonalities and also our beautiful differences, what makes this planet, the population, so diverse. And that's why it's critical that you have sanctuaries like this that celebrate difference and also amplify what we have in common. Uh, and that's why it's so important that we preserve this space and use it as a model for people in every community. Do not take this place for granted. You know, I travel the world, I travel this country at least before the pandemic I did, and it's very rare to have a sanctuary like this uh, that explicitly is about people speaking for themselves, creating your own media, challenging those in power, keeping them accountable and honest for all of us to live in a more sustainable, just, and equitable world. Um, I have my little puppy, Zazu, here. Um, I am a vegan. She is not, as she chews on her bone at my feet. <laughs> Um, with my full approval. Um, this is my first time bringing her on the road because I got her during the pandemic. Her name is Zazu. Every time I walk down the street and I share her name with someone, they say, oh, the Lion King. I had no idea there was a bird named Zazu, the Lion King. Uh, but she was named after um, some freedom fighters. The French youth of occupied France during World War II. Uh, they loved swing and jazz. They would go to the underground nightclubs, especially the expat ones. Uh, they dressed kind of like David Byrne. And they fought the Nazis and the fascists. And they were often targeted by them. They were the Zazu. They were the freedom fighters. Little Zazu is a freedom biter, and I just, and she now comes with me everywhere. So this is a great experiment to see if I could make it through a talk, and she seems extremely interested in her bones, so this is definitely promising. Um, but that brings me to another story, very seriously. But we all, you know, live lives that, um, where we are very grounded in reality and have um, beautiful families, dysfunctional families, people we love, people we don't get along with, but people we must learn to live with. And that's also what media is about. It's learning from each other, how we get by together. And I also think that's what the pandemic taught us. 
For those of us who are lucky to survive, and my condolences to anyone who lost loved ones during the pandemic, and let's never forget it was not equal opportunity because we don't live in an equal world. In the United States, those who died of COVID all too often were the least fortunate among us, least access to health care. Um, we need to have Medicare for all, so health insurance is not the decider of who lives and who dies in this country. But it taught us about the importance of community and what it means for us all to be together. I mean, even here, um, I always walk around with a mask, and when I get uh, into an elevator with someone, they say, oh, excuse me, because many people don't wear masks. I guess you don't, well, you're afraid of me. I say, oh, no, 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 no. You should be afraid of me. I consider myself typhoid Mary, and I don't want to infect you. And that's changed people's attitudes so much. It's not you I'm afraid of. I'm afraid I could somehow hurt you. So we have to protect each other, and each of us has to start with ourselves as we reach out in the world. Um, there are great risks, but of course there are greater risks in not reaching out, and we have to fill figure out how to build community together um, in these times, which keeps me back in World War II to the talking about the White Rose Collective, who were their own kind of journalists. Um, I think of Hans and Sophie Scholl. They were brother and sister. They weren't Jewish, they were Christian Germans. But they thought, what can we do in the face of the Nazi atrocity? Um, Hans was a medical student at the University of Munich. And Sophie, his sister, was an undergraduate. And they and their professor and some others, students, formed the White Rose Collective. And they decided they needed to inform Germans about what was happening so that they would never be able to say, we didn't know. They published a series of six pamphlets, and on one of those pamphlets it said, we will not be silent. They would have them distributed everywhere, drop them in an alleyway, at a marketplace in the middle of the night, hurl them from um, a balcony at the university, and they would fall on the atrium for students and professors and staff to see. Hans and Sophie and their professor were eventually caught by the Gestapo. They were tried, they were they were charged, they were tried, they were convicted, and they were beheaded. But that philosophy, that motto, should be the Hippocratic oath of us all today. We will not be silent. Democracy now. Steve, congratulations, and thank you for all that you have done, not only for the sanctuary, but for independent media. Um, because when one place like this is built, it has a ripple effect all over. And I think um, where this will go is what we'll talk about in, uh, in a little while. But I want to talk about how this all began. Steve, you and I met at WBAI in, what was it, 1980? 
1987. And Steve was the operations director at WBAI in New York. Um, <clears throat> our loss was your gain when he left WBAI. And what brought you to try New York? Uh, well, I came to go to grad school at RPI. And what did you major in? I got a PhD in the, from the Department of Science and Technology Studies, and it was based on uh, really um, uh, communication and political science, what we can do uh, using communications technology to try to deal with the, the major issues of our time and focused on community media. And talk about how the Sanctuary for Independent Media was born. Well, it's a long story. It starts, I mean, a lot of the people in the room know this because they were there with me, which I really appreciate. There's so many people involved in this. It's a little awkward for me because, uh, I, although I do appreciate the honor, uh, you know, obviously it couldn't have been done, um, I couldn't have done it myself. Um, starting with Brandon Miller, who's downstairs switching this uh, program, and uh, Kathy High. Yay, Brenda! And so many people that I, I hesitate to start naming names because I'm obviously going to forget somebody and, and regret it, but uh, really, uh, if, if not you, somebody sitting next to you was involved in creating this. Um, it really started for me, I, I had a career in community media um, that included uh, stand in New Orleans, a community radio station there, WWOZ, and uh, freelancing as a journalist for NPR and Pacifica Radio, which had a news show at the time. And uh, I went on to work in New York at WBAI, where I met Amy. I was afraid that nothing good would happen with Amy. She was a hard worker, but she just didn't really seem to have what it takes to be successful. So <laughs> that was really the beginning of my HR career, a, a, dismal, uh, a dismal HR career. I shouldn't mean it. Um, but I spent a year there at WBAI and, and worked at uh, Deep Dish TV, which is a community television uh, project, and went on to grad school to try to, you know, figure out more about the the overview, the overview of the situation that, that we're in with uh, both with media and, and politics in this country. And there I became involved at uh, the, the uh, student radio station, WRPI, at RPI, which at the time had a very robust um, uh, community involvement. And we um, uh, gathered together really under the banner of Democracy Now!, which was new at the time. I think w WRPI was one of maybe, I mean, less than 10 stations that was airing uh, the program outside of the Pacifica network. And uh, that was the core, really. The people who were involved at that time at WRPI became the core of Indie Media, uh, which was a movement around 2000, uh, of a global movement of, that evolved into, I don't know, almost 100, maybe more than 100 uh, uh, decentralized media organizations around the world. Um, and we had one here. It was called the Hudson Mohawk Independent Media Center. Uh, we, worked at, uh, we worked out of the... Um, YWCA and Troy and uh, any place we could find a space and we found ourselves bouncing around all the time trying to find space. Space was so urgent and uh, that's in a place where space is much less expensive than it is in most places in the world. Um, people come visit from New York and, and New York City and see what we have here and they, they can't believe it uh, that we have so much uh, and it costs so little but for us it wasn't little. And it was, it was just always a struggle to find a place to host speakers. Uh, the first time Amy came here, I think, was in 1900 and... 
96 maybe, uh, to do a, uh, a benefit for the Friends of WRPI because we were running the show. And it was at Mother Earth's Cafe in downtown Albany, which was a, a small cafe that was, was the only place we could find where they would allow us to come and do a political talk. And every time we tried to do a, an event, it was a, a real struggle. The Chapel and Cultural Center at RPI, or uh, Christ Church in Troy, or uh, Livingston Magnet School in Albany. It was always finding, trying to find a place. It was very difficult uh, for speakers and for music, even harder because the music economy is fueled by alcohol and by mass market music. It's very difficult to find a place to host a band from Africa that doesn't have any commercial potential in the United States. And so it became obvious to us that we needed our own place. We needed our own space. Or not only to do presentations, we actually found the space first because we had to leave the YWCA and we needed a place for our editing equipment um, and just to work. And so we worked in the basement of this building uh, kind of huddled together for warmth because it was uninsulated and uh, in pretty bad shape. And we used the upstairs for fundraisers. And the fundraisers were uh, events like film screenings, talks, um, different kinds of speakers, uh, all different kinds of things, and uh, music. And so um, we originally rented it. Is, is Russell Zambri here today? I don't know if uh, he was the original owner of the building. Thank you, Russell. Russell let us use it for the cost of his taxes when we started. And um, we, um, we realized that if we could afford to pay the taxes on it, if we became a nonprofit, we could avoid the taxes and use that to pay the mortgage. Uh, and so uh, that was the beginning of uh, this physical presence that we have in Troy, uh, North Troy, uh, which was at the time, I, I, I don't think I'd ever been to North Troy. And it wasn't on the way to any place that I went. So uh, it was really hard. I remember the first two or three times I came here, I couldn't find it because 6th Avenue turns into 5th Avenue there and there's all these obstacles to uh, finding us, uh, which now with GPS, one of the good things about the march of time is that you can now uh, find the place with your phone. Uh, but anyway, that was, you know, I could go on and on, but that was the, the trajectory and it was all based on finding a stable place that uh, if we didn't own it, at least we controlled it. Um, and now we own it, although we uh, you know, we're partial owners of it along with the Community Loan Fund of the Capital Region, and that's one of the things we're talking about tonight. What, could, what would it take to kick her through the goalposts, secure our future, just like you as homeowners, if you are, secure a place where you can be and not be worrying all the time about getting evicted or doing something that's going to annoy people. Those of you who have been around long enough know that in 2008, the city of Troy shot us down because they didn't like what we were doing here. We had the radical idea that going to war in Iraq would be a, a bad thing to do, not just for us, but for everybody in the world. It was an unpopular opinion at the time, and they shut us down for uh, presenting an Iraqi-American artist who had that view. And so those are the kinds of reasons why you... Is something to do with the size of the doors? Yes, they said that after 100 years, as a church, our doors were two inches too narrow, and had to be, uh, we had to be closed immediately uh, to preserve public safety. <laughs> Literally. And so... Um, we shut down and, and uh, a number of venues in, in uh, Troy and throughout the capital region became uh, sanctuaries in exile and allowed us to present a variety of programs during the six weeks that we were closed. Uh, we, it was, uh, actually, it turned out to be a great thing for us. It was pretty stressful at the time. Um, I'd never felt so naked, really, in a way. I remember sitting in the basement and when, they, when I got the message from, this, from the city, I thought, oh my God, what do we, you know, how do you fight these people? I mean, they, they, they have all the power. They have code enforcement, they have the police, they have, they have it all. And I, for a moment, got a glimmer of what it's like to live here as a tenant in one of these buildings in the neighborhood. I mean, it's just terrifying, because you have nowhere to turn 
Well, it turned out that the people we didn't even know were supporters of ours came to our rescue, and it turned out to be a great fundraiser for us, so much so that we tried to book terrorists whenever we could in the, in the hope that, or at least accuse terrorists, so in the hope that we could get shut down again and do some more fundraising. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what happened to us in 2008, and we've had a trajectory since then of continually trying to do things to improve the neighborhood and to try to improve our position in it and to do more um, in, a, in a neighborhood that really had been abandoned. You know, there's thousands of vacant properties in the capital region, Albany's connected to Detroit, and hundreds of them are right around us. And on our block, there were 10, in one block, 10 vacant properties, buildings and lots. And we were trying to run an organization here as plywood was going up on buildings all around us. And we realized that um, we, couldn't stay in, we, we couldn't just stay hunkered down ourselves in the place that we owned because nobody would come here. It was falling apart around us. And so we started taking charge of it ourselves because the, the city had made us, had made North Troy a sacrifice zone. They were just gonna let it fall apart and focus on the downtown and the neighborhoods where there are middle class homeowners and just sacrifice the tenants, sacrifice long-term residents here who just don't have a lot of money. And uh, we started buying properties that uh, were abandoned because it was incredibly inexpensive, uh, relatively. A couple hundred dollars for a vacant lot, uh, buying properties uh, from the banks when they went up for foreclosure, and got to a point now where we have the sanctuary, we have the uh, Freedom Square, we have a residency space across the street where we uh, host visiting artists and interns, and now a couple of, since the pandemic, a couple of our staff people live there. We have gardens and we just opened the Nature Lab and People's Health Sanctuary in a building that had been abandoned for 20 years. Looking for something to do. Well, thank all of you. Looking for something to do with these buildings. What can we do with these buildings that doesn't involve exploitative relationships with tenants, which is the only economic model that people can figure out in neighborhoods like this? And we're sitting on the material culture, the leftovers of capitalism. People were made rich on the banks of the Hudson with the industrial operations and the other kinds of things in the 1800s that made Troy fabulously wealthy. And people took that wealth out of the city and went to wherever they are and left behind you know, the rest of us. And so we're searching for a model of what can be done with all of this potential, human potential, architectural potential, everything that it takes to carve out a meaningful life and not wait for somebody else to do it. Because it became clear to us that not only are they, they're not coming to do it, but they'll also try to crush us when we try to do it if it seems to present a threat. And so that's been our, that's been our goal. In addition to doing the, while we're you know, having music and dance parties and speakers and films, it's part of the process. We have to do it. You know, <clears throat> there's this indie media movement around the country. And, um, but rarely did you have people completely own their own space. I think of in um, Champaign-Urbana, Urbana-Champaign, they bought the post office. And you guys have the sanctuary. And you're really two of the last remaining uh, independent media groups that have actually grown. But for people who are here tonight, there may not be many who don't know all these properties and what their point is. You just took me on a tour, which is amazing. You have the sort of concert space outside, the public space. Describe each one of these um, properties that you have, whether inside or a house, and what they're doing inside. 
I will. I'll, I'll just say very quickly, you mentioned Champaign-Urbana. Uh, they literally bought the U.S. post office in Urbana. A, a building, of, you know, five-story building that occupies an entire city block downtown. And I went there uh, f for a conference or some sort of indie media gathering, and I thought, if they can buy the seg if they can buy the post office, we can buy an abandoned church in North Troy. Uh, it, it's certainly possible. What can we do to do that? And I've been inspired. We've all been inspired by traveling around the country and seeing what other people are doing. And one uh, place that uh, really st um, sticks in my mind was Detroit. I remember being, having been here for a few years and just feeling depressed at how, how hard it was, you know, just the trash and, uh, you know, just, just urban living in a place where people aren't getting the services that they need to make it livable. And I went to Detroit, you know, abandoned buildings, all, all that. I went to Detroit, which is filled with abandoned buildings. Detroit used to be the most prosperous city in America. And it was just kicked to the curb, just left for whoever wanted it. Uh, North Troy, Arbor Hill, Hamilton Hill, times a thousand, the whole city. And I went there and it was filled with young people who were taking over the storefronts, taking over the houses, taking chances because the barrier to entry was so low, nobody wanted it. And they were creating bicycle shops and gardening collectives and uh, coffee shops and you know whatever and if they failed at what they were doing they stopped and they started doing something else they just kept going with it and I came back to Troy and I thought well, this is fantastic there's vacant buildings all over the place and trash this is great we can do that here so that was the inspiration really for for getting started with this uh, Freedom Square came about because uh, when the city closed us down because our doors were two inches too narrow we were thinking okay what are they gonna do next and we thought parking that's a favorite uh, and so we realized uh, that uh, although we got permission to open this place, uh, even though we didn't have the required 70 parking spaces for a new church, uh, there, no one has any cars in the neighborhood because they can't, not nobody, but many people are here without cars, they can't afford them. Um, and there's so many vacant properties that the number of spaces on the street are more than adequate for the people who have cars. And so we did time-lapse photography. Actually, uh, was it Penny Lane? I, I don't remember who it was who did, I think it was Penny Lane who did the, uh, our Penny Lane, not the other one, uh, who did the uh, time-lapse photography. We went to the city and showed them that there was no parking problems. But we realized that that might not be enough, and so Freedom Square became available. The church that was on that lot, there used to be four churches within a block of here, including this one. Um, the, the congregation had decided to tear the church down because they had a roof leak and uh, couldn't figure out how to fix it and how to maintain it. And so there was a vacant lot there which had some parking spaces. So we bought it to get the parking spaces and quickly realized that having an outdoor space would be a great way to reach out to people who didn't feel comfortable coming in. Culturally or for whatever reason, it was hard to do neighborhood outreach. And so we went out into the neighborhood and we uh, have been doing free concerts with free music, free food, free art activities uh, for, the, for the community. And have been doing that since we purchased Freedom Square. And since then we built the stage and it's a big community art project uh, that the uh, uh, kids throughout the uh, neighborhood participated in doing the mosaic out there. Um, I'm going to speed it up because we have a you know there's a long story to tell and I won't try to do it all here. But Freedom Square was really the beginning of an understanding that we could do this ourselves. We bought the lot for four thousand dollars, which seemed like a huge amount of money at the time. Um, and then I think. Uh, 
We ended up purchasing a lot that we turned into a garden. We, we, were, we were finding one of, the, one of the things we did early on was we realized that because of all the vacant properties and the absentee landlords, sidewalks don't get shoveled in the winter. Lawns don't get mowed. There's no basic maintenance that you take for granted in a community where there are vested people who can afford uh, to take care of their properties and who want to because they're their properties. And so after a few winters of um, dealing with shoveling sidewalks and so forth, we started, uh, we bought a snowblower and because people would be, would be going down the street during the winter with their kids and strollers in the middle of the street because you couldn't go on the sidewalks. The only place it was plowed was the, was the, was the roadway. So we bought a snowblower and started, we took it on as an organizational commitment to snowblow the riverside of 6th Avenue from Freedom Square to what was then a Stewart's. So people could at least get from the bus stop to do grocery shopping. And uh, that, was a, that was the philosophy that started, you know, we started picking up. Why not, we, we started buying vacant lots uh, because we were picking up the trash on them anyway. And so we bought lots that we turned into gardens, uh, which you'll see at the Color City uh, Growers, which is halfway down the block here. Um, we, uh, we ended up, there was a beautiful Victorian across the street from, from us um, that we saw broken windows and doors open after a long time of stable tenancy. It had been purchased by a, an investor in California just before the mortgage bubble um, broke in 2008. And uh, he bought the building after going to, maybe it was a Trump-funded real estate seminar. Um, they thought, oh, a brownstone in New York, thinking New York City. Um, he bought a brownstone in North Troy and uh, paid too much and then got a mortgage on it uh, and um, ended up evicting the people who were in it because they couldn't afford the rent anymore. And it sat vacant ever since. And we watched it fall apart. We, we saw on the ground what you could read about in the news headlines, what was happening in urban America, everywhere. And um, the pipes were stolen, the wiring was stolen, and I walked in there one day and it was just this incredible Victorian that all, somehow the woodwork and everything was still intact, it, was still, it still looked great, uh, you know, minus the wiring and the pipes and so forth. So we, we boarded it up and we started a tug of war with the uh, uh, drug addicts who were going in and out of there and eventually were able to purchase it from the bank. We, we had to force the bank to sell it because they would rather keep it on the books for the book value of the property rather than sell it for the actual value, which would have been hundreds of thousands of dollars of difference. So we shamed them into selling it to us. I think we paid $10,000 for it, turned it into the residency space that I talked about. Um, and then we, you know, so uh, the, the, the main part of the story for us, the most recent thing, was the purchase of the building that has become Nature Lab, which has been, had been vacant for 20 years, just sitting there. And we bought it uh, uh, through the land bank and then renovated with help from the Department of Environmental and Conservation and many volunteers, some of whom were here. Uh, my, my friend Larry Electric, who uh, coincidentally is an electrician, um, and, and uh, not entirely coincidentally, uh, lives in Ohio and actually came here and uh, on a vacation rewired, actually did wiring in this building initially and then rewired all of the second floor of Nature Lab. Uh, it's incredible. Um, he went in for triple bypass surgery immediately after that. I'm not sure if we had anything to do with it, but he's breathing well now and everything's good. Uh, St. Wayne, I don't know if you made it here today, but he's done so much of the uh, work on this building and the others, just all volunteer driven. I didn't fully appreciate that 
until we did the first floor of Nature Lab, which was grant supported, which it cost $200,000 to do one floor at you know, market rates, and then $20,000 to do the second floor with volunteer help. So that's been the, that has been the engine driving us from the beginning, not just in terms of the real estate and that part, but the community media is driven by volunteers.